Good evening. Hope you're all enjoying your Sunday night. I keep thinking it's a Saturday night, but it's not. We have, I have a three-day weekend, I guess, technically tomorrow. I don't know. The kids are off from school. In any case, um, <clears throat> we concluded our uh, pistol dive, deep dive last night, but I came across an article about Malcolm McLaren, um, who is a very interesting and important figure in, you know, the pistols lore and history. And it made me sort of realize, wonder, you know, or at least the, this question cro- crossed my mind. And I don't think I'm the first person to ask this question. It's probably really obvious. The answer is probably really obvious, but I figure why not, you know, we like to be completionists here and why not um, be thorough and sort of uh, covered on the channel? And the question is as follows. The question is as follows. Uh, would the Sex Pistols exist without Malcolm McLaren? And I think the the answer is, the truth is, they wouldn't, at least not in the way not in the way that they would be uh, for better and for worse, because, you know, under the guidance of Malcolm McLaren, they weren't really a functional band. They were more, it was more about sensationalism, you know? Um, and that really they were sort of, you know, doomed to self-destruct under Malcolm's guidance and whatnot. And uh, it just, it was, it was never going to work out. And yet the paradox is at the same time, without Malcolm McLaren, they probably would not have been what they would have been. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have gone as far as they went without Malcolm. So it's like much like the Glenn Matlock situation where they stopped being a functional band without him and replacing him with Sid Vicious. It's the same thing with Malcolm without Malcolm. They never, they would have just, they might've just been a, you know, an English pub band doing small faces covers. Cause you know, they were big fans of the faces, you know? Um, and so having Malcolm McLaren and, you know, that influence, you know, him soaking up what's going on in New York. Cause you know, he went to New York in 1974 with Vivian Westwood and they sort of, um, they, they, they sort of soak up everything that's going on. They start to get us uh, affiliate themselves with the New York dolls. What's going on Ridge killer. Um, he sees, he sees uh, Richard hell walk into CBGB's wearing a shirt with this phrase on the shirt. And that gives him the idea um, for a whole new type of aesthetic. So, and I mean, that's what Malcolm sort of seemed to do best, you know, to find something interesting or, or provocative or, you know, something that was something that was unique and then packaging it, you know, because, you know, Malcolm was, you know, he was sort of a, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, you know, he was all about making things commercial. He was a commercialist, if you want to call it right. So he's taking really unique, interesting things and packaging them in a whole new way and regurgitating them. And so what happens is 
New York, the fashion that's going on in New York is very accidental. And then the fashion that seeps over in London, in, in, uh, in England, uh, ends up becoming very almost like kind of uniform. And then because it's commercialized and packaged, it turns into sort of that whole paradox of the whole idea of punk is to be unique. But when everybody starts wearing punk as a uniform, it's no longer punk anymore. And I think Malcolm is like, you know, a propagator or, you know, the way I look at the story, the history, I think that's, you know, that's all because of Malcolm. So it ends up being a catch 22 without Malcolm. They're not going to do, they're not going to be the, the sex pistols in the way that they were the sex pistols, you know, the aesthetic, the artistic aesthetic, the, the way that the nevermind the Bullocks shirt uh, uh, album cover looks or the God save the queen sing, uh, the God save the queen single uh, single. They need Malcolm and, and Vivian for that stuff. You know, they, they sort of, take their cues. And so, you know, I used to sort of contextualize the pistols in the wrong kind of way. I kind of, you know, it's really this book's fault, you know, legs McNeil writes about the pistols in here and really does treat them as like a boy band. You know what I mean? In, in that kind of way. Um, when it was sort of 50, 50, cause I mean, the pistols did write Malcolm wasn't writing that music. You know what I'm saying? They wrote that music. They came up with that music. Glenn Matlock with Steve Jones and Paul Cook and John Johnny Rotten. They put they made those songs. But at the same time, you know, the the aesthetic and the sensationalism and the manipulation of putting this person here, putting Sid Vicious right where he needed to be. Hey, let's take this volatile, violent, you know, uh, junkie kid. And put him right into the mix so that he can do something crazy. What's going on? Uh, Archduke Ramon is in the house. He says, in my opinion, Malcolm probably challenged them to do something, but focused on their image to an excess. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I remember Buffalo Girls when I was a kid before I knew of the Sex Pistols in 1984. Yeah, Malcolm was involved with uh, a lot of with a lot of groups i believe bow wow wow he was involved with adam and the ants early versions of the clash the dam we talked about that on yesterday's show if you missed it we did a long disorganized scattered review of pistol the new um series on fx hulu on hulu fx i i by danny boyle i highly recommend that everybody goes check it out it's great it's really really great Ah, uh, Ravner, you made it to the live stream. Ravner was upset that they didn't make it to the live stream yesterday. Sylvain Sylvain's book, No Bones in Ice Cream, has a lot to say about Malcolm. I really want to read it, man. That is so on my list. Um, Really probably should have read it. Maybe I'll do a follow-up video after I read it and have an even clearer picture. I actually do have something here. I wanted to just, just sort of, re you know, I found this great, as I said, I found this great article that perhaps um, will paint, you know, a little bit more of a picture. But before we do, I just want to let everybody know that I have a, a Pistols-themed shirt, Pizza Punk shirt. If you were here yesterday, you heard me talking about it. It's available in the shop. Check it out. Um, I'm going to link. I'm going to send you a link to it right now. Here's the link. Check out this, this fun shirt. 
that I sort of photoshopped together. I think, I think Malcolm, <laughs> I think Malcolm, who is who is no longer on this mortal plane. I think if he were alive and he saw this shirt, he would approve of it. Um, because this is what Malcolm did, you know, co-op something, change it around a little bit and call it his own. Right. Although I'm not calling this my own. It's just, you know, it's just a fun shirt, a really fun shirt. So check that out. That's in the shop store frontier. Give it a, give it a, give it a whirl, give it a spin. If you're so inclined to do. Um, okay. Moving on, moving on. Okay. Let's go check out this article real quick. Now, I one thing I don't like about this article is the fact that it comes from a Jewish it comes from like a, a Jewish website that I frequent from time to time called Forward. And what annoys me about Forward, oh no, what happened to the uh what happened to this? Hold on, let me try this again. There we go. Um I hate that the title is how a grandson of a Jewish diamond uh, of a how the grandson of Jewish diamond dealers created the greatest rock and roll swindle of all time. I, I just don't like that. I, I don't like what that suggests or propagates. So I'm, I have to be transparent in that kind of way. <laughs> yeah, as long as he got a cut, right? Uh, Radner says Sylvain and Malcolm both were big time into fashion. That's right. That's right. Sylvain made, made hats. He made like these really interesting hats. Music came secondary and neither would deny it. Although I I would argue, but with Sylvain, Sylvain, you know, Sylvain, Sylvain was all about the music, man. He was all about the music. I think with Mal, I think Malcolm put fashion and image way before Sylvain, Sylvain did when it comes to, you know, musical groups. But that's a perfect way to describe it. That's what Malcolm cared about. He cared about the image. This is by Jim Sullivan. Uh, Malcolm McLaren, the creator of the Sex Pistols. So they say that in this article, they, they call him the creator. This is from May 29th, 2022. So it just came out. Uh, forward from forward.com. Um, so he gives the full credit to Malcolm for creating the Sex Pistols. And while I do think that the Sex Pistols could could not have happened without Malcolm, I I don't I, I don't think you can it's fair to also say that that Malcolm was the creator of the Sex Pistols. I think that that was sort of a a joint effort. I think you have to give Jones some credit, you have to give Paul Cook some credit, and then they don't really become that band without Glenn Matlock and Johnny Rotten. So you know, this is not a band where you have like two, one or two founding members, front people, and then, you know, you have all these like f uh, fill-in players. This is a band who very specifically is made up of four individuals that make that band five, technically five. So um, Malcolm McLaren, the creator of the Sex Pistols, built... Uh, a voluminous, if tattered, resume over his many years in the music business. I didn't realize this, but Malcolm Malcolm was also a recording artist in the 80s, and he recorded a slew of solo albums. I've never listened to any of the music. As a matter of fact, he got in trouble um, for not paying royalties because he kind of sort of nicked some music, and he didn't really properly pay for it, I guess, and got into trouble for that. Uh, among the terms that were applied, so they, these are 
terms that apply to Malcolm. Uh, impresario, visionary, charlatan, anarchist, master manipulator. I think that one's a big one. He was. He was a manipulator. And he manipulated everybody into kind of doing what he wanted. And then got was so sort of like self-absorbed about it that he, you know, tried to take credit for everything. And I don't know, you know, uh, in, in the pistol series, they call him, um, uh, Vivian sort of, or somebody likens him to wanting to be a Brian Epstein because, you know, without Brian Epstein, the Beatles wouldn't have been the Beatles, you know, another Jewish rock manager, funny enough. Um, Brian Epstein made the Beatles, the Beatles or helped to make the Beatles, the Beatles. They, he didn't write any of the music, but it was like the same sort of thing. He had, um, business and marketing and, you know, all that kind of acumen that was needed. Given the opportunity, Malcolm didn't care to counter any of those perceptions, right? Um, oh, yeah, the last thing on, on here, plunderer of other people's ideas and cultures. Um, <laughs> uh, Malcolm and Johnny should have done a Christmas duet together. I'm sure that would have that would have gone down well. Uh, Archduke Ramon disagrees that Malcolm created the pistols. He pushed his own narrative. He most certainly did. He most certainly did. And there's a great interview, as I think we talked about yesterday, between uh, Steve Jones and Malcolm McLaren in 2005, five years before he he would uh, die. Um, and it's very sort of tense. And Malcolm is trying his best to be charming. And Steve Jones is just like super direct about like, where's my mom? Where did you do with all the money, Malcolm? That kind of thing. Um, he says, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. McLaren told me with a laugh, copying to any and all charges, equal parts confessing and crowing. It was early 1985, and we were having afternoon drinks on the balcony of the Hoodoo Barbecue, the restaurant above the rat. A Boston punk club. The rat is like the was the Boston version of CBGB's. And every band played through there. It's short for rat. The rat is short for the rat skeller, I believe. I take what I think is good and I remake it and make it work again. He said, I manipulated disasters and turned them into successes. I left people with a lot more than I took. You know, all of these statements are pretty accurate. Like at the end of the day, they're pretty darn accurate. I take what I think is good and I remake it. And it's true. He, he saw Richard L. Oh, I like what he's doing. I'm going to take it and I'm going to remake it and make it work again. Uh, he manipulated disasters like the Grundy show. Right. Um, and turned them into successes. Although that was accidental. You know, that wasn't something that he that he did on purpose. And then I left people with a lot more than I took. And that's by his, you know, that's from his perception. Is that true or real in any way, shape or form? Probably not. But in his mind, it's almost like I'm justifying what I stole because I left people with more. Like, look at John Lydon. I stole a lot from John Lydon, but John Lydon has, is a successful recording artist, right? What's up, Rue Morgue? Rue Morgue is in the house. Rue, have you seen the Pistol series yet? You got to check it out. Okay, so Mike knows all about the rat because his town is Boston. That's cool. Who would have known Slade would have a Christmas song? What's, which Christmas song did Slade do? 
I, I didn't need, I didn't know about that. Um, but I just like that these these sent these uh, statements are so sort of concise about McLaren, you know. Um, you know, it's funny, Mike. Mike says, I have to say, please, nobody make a Misfits movie. First of all, we tried to cast our own Misfits movie. You can find that on the channel. It's one of the videos. But as I was watching Pistol, I was thinking, you know, I want to see Martin Scorsese do the Misfits biopic miniseries. He would do it. Imagine it would just be so it would be really, really well done. It would just be like. You know, I just rewatched Goodfellas because Ray Liotta died, and I just and then I had to watch Casino because I'd watched Goodfellas, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, think about like that sort of kinetic aesthetic, you know, mix it with like some of the aesthetic that we saw in this Pistol, you know, thing, uh, this Pistol series, and I just I could totally imagine so many wonderful stories being you know sort of adapted and streamlined and told. Um, with Martin Scorsese at the helm, you know, the, the grave robbing and, you know, the bashing and bashing a kid in the head with the guitar and just like so much, you know, there's so much, so much legendary mythology just sort of, uh, encapsulated, um, in, in six parts via Scorsese. And since Danny Boyle did such a good job with the editing and the pacing, I would have Danny Boyle in there as like an executive producer or like something like that. Maybe, you know what? Maybe it would be executively produced by Scorsese. No, Scorsese would have to direct it. It would be produced by Danny Boyle. So Danny Boyle would be like, hey, let's add some of this stuff. I mean, take a look at what Scorsese did with that. Uh, what was that show he did on HBO? Where I had the New York Dolls bringing down the Mercer Arts Center with personality crisis. Uh, okay, so Rue has not watched it yet. He will when he has free time. I would love to see. I would love to see a, a Misfits mini series. It'll never happen, but I'd like to see it for sure. Would like to see it for sure. Okay. Um, interested in McLaren and the Sex Pistols is spiking again as Pistol Danny Boyle's mini series launches on FX via Hulu on May 31st. Pistol is based mostly on Steve Jones's 2017 memoir Lonely Boy Tales from a Sex Pistol. Everybody should read this book. It's a great book. I've read it. I read it last summer. Uh, but there are many scenes in the series that Jones could not have witnessed. The battle for control of the band as well as the band's image and message is central to the story. And it comes down to a clash between McLaren and singer Johnny Rotten. You know, it's funny, as I said, you really feel, you really feel, uh, oh my God, do not make me barf. Machine Gun Kelly as Jerry. No, no way, dude. You know who I said though? Bill Scar, Bill Skarsgård as Jerry. That's what I said. That's what I said for that. That'd be crazy. That would that would work. That would work real well, I think. Um, yeah, the beginning of Pistol really feels like Steve Jones' book. And then towards the end, I guess, you know, I don't know if they took anything from Johnny Rotten's book, but it sure feels like they must have. I haven't read Johnny Rotten's book, the, the, the first one he did in 94. But uh, and again, I, man, my, my re summer reading list just, stacks taller and taller and taller um 
So, yeah, it started off as Jones Band, along with his drummer Paul Cook, and then original bassist songwriter Glenn Matlock. But ultimately, it would belong to Rotten, who became the public face of punk. It was a band that McLaren both managed wily and willfully mismanaged. And as we said last night, he was taking 25% and having all his expenses paid or something like that. And it, I mean, he was embezzling money. He was, at least that's what it was in the contract. He was embezzling money from them. And he had them on a, a you know, a stipend, a, you know, like 25 pounds a week, which I don't know how much is, you know, in 1977, I guess it's mediocre relatively. When McLaren and I spoke, it was just seven. It was just seven years after I'd seen the Pistols in Atlanta at the Great Southeast Music Hall, a club at the corner of a shopping mall. It had been their U.S. debut, and it was ferocious fun, all amped up anger and explosive catharsis. But the Pistols were doomed, crashing and burning at the end of that tour. McLaren, who wasn't with them on that tour, had routed them through the American South thinking that that's where they'd be the most hated and could do the most damage. So, I mean, there is, there quite clearly is Malcolm's fingerprints. Hey, let's have them. Instead of having them do a residency at Max's Kansas City in New York City, where they would have been lauded as like kings, let's have you guys go through the South, which is probably the most unhospitable place, not just to the fact that, you know, they're, uh, they're not Americans, but also the fact that they're, you know, these these British, they're these British punks, you know. Um, and the reason why, why, what's the answer? Why I'm gonna have them go through the south because I want more headlines. Well, I want another give me another Grundy. Because the more Grundy we have, the better off we're gonna be. You know, that had to have been the logic on some level, right? Something like that. Um, the, the writer says he wasn't altogether wrong. There were genuine Pistols fans in the U.S. Uh, I met 500 rabid ones in Atlanta. But McLaren was spot on in terms of mainstream media coverage and ordinary people who were offended by the snot and vitriol of these young English upstarts. Um, Archduke says, Pistols first got me into punk rock in 82. I had not heard of, I had not, I hadn't heard nothing before as I lived in the Midwest, the land of the almost no good music at that time. I mean, this is before subculture becomes homogenized via the internet, where you can literally find a community of anybody into any sort of niche thing, no matter where you live. And regionally, where you were situated was very much sort of enmeshed in what your identity might be in that kind of way. Um, Mike says, yeah, that tour could have been way more successful. Malcolm didn't realize how important they were here in the U S already. Yeah. I mean, he just sort of squandered it instead of he, you know, have them fly, do a residency at Max's in New York, then fly out, do some shows at the whiskey, a go, go, you know what I mean? I mean, they would have just, they would have been incredibly hit Chicago. You know, they would have just been incredibly, incredibly well received. It would have worked. It, it would have worked. They might have gotten another album 
out of those guys, even with, you know, Sid in the band. Maybe they call up Glenn Matlock and say, hey, can you ghostwrite a bunch of songs since Matt was uh, since Glenn was supposedly a hired gun uh, coming back in from time to time. Uh, the tour concluded in San Francisco at Winterland with singer Johnny Rotten prowling a debris written stage, leaving the audience with the taunt. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Surely it ended in chaos and lawsuits and the heroin overdose death of bass, bassist Sid Vicious after he allegedly stabbed girlfriend Nancy Spongin to death. But when we spoke, McLaren wistfully recalled the band's formative days. And in the movie, I mean, in the miniseries, they really make Malcolm into almost a sociopath when Nancy and Sid both die and he's more concerned about T-shirts, you know? Um, Yeah, man, L.A. was late waiting and they lost out. It was... It was it was doomed from the beginning because of McLaren. See, that's the thing. He created this thing. And the thing was, here's what here's what's interesting to go back to the Grundy incident one more time. He books them on Grundy. He doesn't know maybe necessarily what's going to happen. He starts freaking out that they've like totally ruined their careers. And then he sees that he accidentally created an international media storm. And then it all goes to his head. Yeah, I'm brilliant. Yeah, this was all a part of the plan. And then it goes from something that happens by accident to, yeah, this was my of my design and my doing, and I'm great, and yada, yada, yada. And then you have Jones and Cook just wanting to be the band. You have Sid Vicious completely out of control, going crazy, and you have Johnny Rotten thinking that he's the star and that he's the face and calling the other guys his backing band. You know, he calls jones and cook is backing band they hated each other they couldn't stand each other in that kind of way in person uh no he says how how can i create such a poisonous and uh vera virile 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 i can't pronounce that word frenzy he asked the chemistry was perfect the concept was brilliant just brilliant i had all the ideas with rotten picking up on them I had the best soldiers possible, all of them hating each other. We were bound together. We all hated everything that came before. Um, in person, McLaren seems very much like the character portrayed in Pistol by Thomas Brody Sangster, who did a good job. He did do a good job, uh, a little a little cartoonish, but overall great. And again, Thomas also could have played, would have done a great job as as Johnny Rotten, frankly. Yeah, right. Black flag and the germs opening for the pistols. I mean, they would have crushed it, man. There would have been twice as many punk bands that that would have started up and have the Ramones uh, doing shows with them in New York. It would have worked, man. It really would have worked like Irving Plaza or something or obviously CBGB's as well. An alternately charming and abrasive man, an Elvin. I think Elvin works elvin fellow with a shock of wild curly reddish hair he was an enthusiastic and bombastic wordsmith bombastic is a really great word um we're gonna look up the definition the precise definition of it but i love that he used bombastic high sounding but with little meaning inflated i think that kind of describes malcolm a little bit in that you know High sounding, charming, you know, Amy, 
We have not seen you in so long. How are you? Uh, hope school is going well. Hope you're kicking ass and taking names and, you know, astronomy stuff. Glad to have you in the chat. Uh, Stoker thinks this is a contest. Ramones is better than pistols. We're not comparing the two. It's not a comparison, man. It's not a comparison. We're just talking pistols. Archduke says McLaren was pushing cash for chaos. Putting the band in bad situations did not work in the U.S. as McLaren did not properly market his audience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, thri- it was thriving on chaos and negativity, you know. Um, He was enthusiastic and bombastic wordsmith who, I mean, it wasn't just his ideas were bombastic too. You know, underneath it all, it was all about, you know, how many T-shirts could I sell? You know, it, that's what it was all about. Um, He wore his uh, pretentiousness proudly. He touted cultural revolution and reveled in making, as he liked to put it, cash from chaos. So literally what you're quoting here, uh, the cash from chaos is literally said in this article. He was born into an upper middle class family in London, the son of Scottish born engineer Peter McLaren and Emily Isaacs, whose parents, Mick Isaacs and Rose Corey Isaacs, were Sephardic Jewish diamond dealers. It was his grandmother, Corey Isaacs, who primarily raised him. According to former McLaren colleague Mark Beasley, writing in Freeze, Uh, Corey Isaacs taught him to be bad is good and to be good is simply boring, which really sort of sets the stage for what he's going to do with bands like the pistols. As far uh, as far as his relationship with his mom, Emily goes, suffice it to say that it was not a loving one in 1984, Judy uh, Vermoral who was co-writing a book about the pistols with her then-husband Fred, told the Daily Standard, we've talked to Malcolm's mom. Even she doesn't like him. When I relayed this quote to to McLaren, he cackled for nearly a half minute, 30 seconds. Settling down to ponder the thought, he said, well, it might be true. Then again, he reasoned, I haven't seen my mother for 17 years. I don't know what the hell she thinks about me. And personally, I don't bloody care. She's stupid. McLaren seemed happiest when talking about pop music in terms of creating chaos and frenzy. He was most bitter when talking about prepackaged pop music as he felt most of it had become. Um, let's take a quick break to take our uh, a little sponsor break. Riotstickers.com, Riotstickers, we are the bomb. We've got some, we're, we're cooking up some more stuff for you guys. In terms of contests and things, you should definitely check it out. Um, they print up that beautiful banner, and we have a link to Riot Stickers if you want to check out their website down in the uh, description of this video. We love riotstickers.com. Uh, they power our channel. Check them out. Let's play the 60-second video before we wrap things up here. Are you ready, kids? Yeah. 
Yeah, man. Riotstickers.com. Anyway, back to what we're reading. McLaren says, I don't mind telling everybody off. I don't mind opening the can of worms. I don't mind opening the can of worms. I don't mind not having a relaxing time. I don't mind not rubbing shoulders with people. And I don't mind not shaking hands. And I don't mind being a bit of fisticuffs, he says. Many saw the symbolic, if acrid, relationship between McLaren and Rotten, who was born John Lydon and has used that name in his subsequent band, Public Image Limited, uh, as an older brother, younger brother relationship or mentor and protege, as it was with Steve Jones. And, you know, the again, the show does a great job. That pistol show does a great job of showing the manipulation with Jones. And I think. I'm sure that Jones was probably easier to manipulate than Rotten, it seems. Rotten always disputed that uh, Rotten always disputed that, and after the Sex Pistols implosion, he fired many a nasty word McLaren's way, at one point calling him the most evil man in the world. So he denies that he had that sort of relationship with Malcolm, the older brother, younger brother, mentoring relationship, and uh, called him the most evil man in the world instead. Given that, Leiden was sanguine. Oh, man, I don't. I need to know what that word means. I know why. I, I guess I, it must mean sad or, let's see. Uh, oh, never mind. He says it, it means optimistic or positive, especially in an apparently bad or difficult situation. Okay. Okay. Um, when McLaren died for me, Malk was always entertaining. And I hope you remember that. He said, above all else, he was an entertainer and I will miss him. And so should you. So even with all the legal stuff, because what happened in, in 1979, after the, the, the pistols had imploded, they went after Malcolm to get uh, control of a whole bunch of stuff from him. And eventually they won out, but it took about seven years by 1986 the all the members of the band were able to get the rights to the name and I guess to the music and stuff, all the stuff that that was in that was in the sort of um, insidiously draconian contract that they might have signed eventually went to the band. But it was and that was, you know, John and, and Steve Jones gives John Johnny Rotten the um, all the credit in the world in his book about, you know, um, taking Malcolm to court because he wasn't you know prepared to do it and he, they all listened to him they all listened to Rotten and they all prevailed for it yeah I've never listened to PIL they're very revered um, it's never interested me um, the, uh, I don't know much about the band I just know it's kind of considered to be post-punk I don't know do they even do they play any pistol songs I wonder um, after the pistols imploded, McLaren labored on the great rock and roll swindle, a movie directed by Julian Temple, intending to reconstruct the Sex Pistols myth as to paint himself as the master manipulator. So basically, he doesn't have the band anymore, and he makes a movie about himself. And I've actually never seen the movie, but um, I've, you know, sort of read a lot about it and you know know a little bit about it it was just this patchwork thing that you know 
they had been shooting lots of footage and it, it even features Glenn Matlock and archival footage. I mean, everybody's in it. There's animated sequences. There's all sorts of stuff in there. And at the center is Malcolm McLaren. And he's basically saying, I created it all. It's all because of me, you know, um, trying to re, you know, rewrite history as to, you know, take full and complete credit when maybe he only deserves partial credit. And, you know, here we go. Master manipulator. That word comes up again. He goes, it was my fantasy. McLaren told me trying to blow your ego up to ridiculous proportions going further beyond anything Fleet Street had conjured up, he says. McLaren was always a man with a scheme. He was not a musician or much of a singer, but except apparently he had a slew of albums. But before the Pistols, he managed the glam proto-punk New York Dolls in their final days. And mind you, this was the New York Dolls, I believe. You know, he did the same thing with them that he did with the Pistols. He sent them to the South. Um, Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders, who were both, you know, dope fiends, basically quit the band because they needed to get a fix. They went back to New York. They started the Heartbreakers, you know. And what's funny is then the Heartbreakers would go on to tour with the Sex Pistols. Um, and post Pistols, he was involved with some of Britain's most trendy acts, including Boy George. I didn't know that about Boy George, Adam and the Ants. I didn't know, and Bow Wow Wow the latter of which was fronted by a scantily clad 15-year-old singer named Annabelle Lewin, which left him feeling an uncharacteristic twinge of guilt. I didn't know that. So he kind of turned into like a Kim, Kim Fowley, maybe a little bit there. He says, I'm just a lecherous lunatic. Uh, she didn't want to do this. She really just wanted to be at home singing out of tune Stevie Wonder songs. McLaren said his experience with Bow Wow Wow led him to consider getting out of the business altogether. He didn't. Improbably enough, McLaren became a recording artist in his own right in 1983. Duck Rock, his first album, was an eclectic electro-pop and rap album. Fans, his second... I mean, it was always it's always was about him being the center, the star, you know what I mean? And finally made the leap and just became a a musician himself in, in, in a matter of speaking recording artist. Maybe that's the best way to put it. That's definitely the, the best way who played bodies when they did South by Southwest. I don't know who you're talking about. Oh, Oh, you're talking about uh public image limited played bodies. That's cool. All right. Um, so fans, McLaren's second album was one of the more bizarre concoctions of its time and an album of classical opera set to electro pop music. It sounds like nothing I want to listen to. McLaren wrote his own rap to Puccini's The Children's Chorus, retitled Boy's Chorus. Oh, wow. All work and no joy makes Malk and every other kind of hack a dull boy, he said. In 1999, he ran for mayor of London. He did not win. He moved to Los Angeles and worked as an ideas consultant for Steven Spielberg. Though it appears none of those ideas came to fruition, he released his final album, Tranquilize, in 2005. And that's where he met with Steve Jones at KOLS when Steve Jones had Jonesy's jukebox. And he's, go, go check it out. It's on YouTube, the interview. It's about 25 minutes long. It's really awkward. In 2010... Uh, McLaren died in a Switzerland clinic suffering from 
the rare cancer mesothemoloma. At his side were his son, Joseph Corey, and his girlfriend of 12 years, young Kim. Uh, at that long ago afternoon session of beers and chat, McLaren told me, so someone is basically eulogizing, you know, 12 years after his death, McLaren. There's a pattern that seems to be developing in the way I work. There's a pattern that seems to be developing in the way I work right from the sex pistols onward. Well, I mean, again, to, to go back to that thought about the New York dolls, he had the New York dolls going through the South too. He was doing the same thing they did with the pistols, man. Funny how McLaren had the dolls and the pistols and Danny Fields had the Stooges and the Ramones. And that pattern seems to me always dealing with something old with a root and then turning it upside down and making it new again. I asked him if he thought of himself as a thief, and he said, inspiration doesn't come out of thin air. Might as well say to Picasso, hey, hey, man, you just ripped off that African sculpture. Of course, Picasso would agree. I wish I could rip off more. Isn't it fabulous? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. All right, so Archduke has listened to Duck Rock and says it was a snoozer. Oh, boy. Ravner says he accompanied the dolls in Florida. So he didn't accompany the pistols, but he did accompany the dolls in Florida, but didn't technically manage them. He loved them, but they, the dolls, were still managed by Marty Thau. Interesting. Uh, he had the dolls wear red suits and had communist. Yeah, they, they were doing a whole communist thing in red patent leather which was definitely not the dolls thing, but they did it. And you can hear the the live album. There's a live album of, of that at that time. Lay off the, the English accent. Now I have a craving for tea and crumpets. <laughs> uh, yeah. Amy, Amy has, Amy has heard my, my wide gambit of, of accents. I, you know, I did a pretty good Johnny rotten uh, some months ago when I was reading like an interview with him and uh, I haven't been able to do it since, but Steve Jones is more like, he's more like this. Thank you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, cookie. You're listening to KOLS. This is Jonesy's jukebox. I have with me, Mr. Malcolm McLaren. Um, it's fun to do uh, bad impressions of British accents. Um, sorry. I'm sorry to do that. So that brings us to the end of our of our little <laughs> bangers and mash, bangers and mash. I'll be honest. I you, listen. I'm sure there's very delicious bangers and mash out there, but I'm going to be honest. When I was in England, I was on tour with a band, and when I was in England with them, we had bangers and mash at some some place in London. This was about ten years ago, and it was very bland. I'm not saying it's all bland. I'm just saying that what my experience was bland. And I hope someday to go back and change that. I hope so. Maybe I went to the wrong place. Maybe we were at the wrong place, but I just felt it was very bland. That's just me personally. Thank you for joining me this evening. Really short, guys. Only 44 minutes. Not bad. Not bad. In and out. <laughs> um. I don't think I'm going to have a show tomorrow. I, it's funny. I just told our sponsor 
Sharpie Riot at riotstickers.com about, oh man, my schedule is going to be really sort of weird this summer. And I'm, you know, I don't know, you know, I'm going to, I need to take a break. I'm so busy. And I, two nights in a row, I did two shows. I didn't even mean to do it. I, it's like, it's like breathing at this point. I just can't help myself. Um, but thank you to everybody who tuned in. Good to see Rue Morgue. Good to see Amy. We haven't seen Amy in a while. And our, our newest uh, channel member, Archduke, in the house. Uh, and Mike and just everybody, thanks for joining us. Um, we'll see you next time. In the meantime, if you don't know about the Patreon. By the way, I posted some stuff on Patreon. If you're a Patreon member, go check it out. We got some Patreon stuff. And if you're a YouTube member, I just posted a bunch of stuff if you're a youtube member uh, in the meantime we say peace and hair grease and let me tell you a little bit about the patreon hey guys what's going on it's jeff so i've decided to make a patreon what is patreon i don't know how to define a patreon let me look it up patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it gonna be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6 and 66 cents. <laughs> The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates, that subscribes. That's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.